Speaking of Faith is supported by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sponsoring the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life to explore how religion shapes ideas and institutions, pewforum.org. Additional support is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith. Today, progressive Islam in America. There are six million Muslims in America, but prior to 9-11, they did not attract as much attention. Now, however, Islamic fundamentalism has changed Americans' way of seeing the world. Scrutiny of the religion of Islam is part and parcel of our public life. In forums of all kinds, often guided by non-Muslim pundits, we ask, what does terrorism have to do with the teachings of the Quran? Can Islam coexist with democracy? Is Islam capable of a reformation, or has it fallen into decay? Today on Speaking of Faith, we pose these questions to a spectrum of American Muslims who describe themselves as devout and moderate. They'll take us inside the Muslim debate on such questions. They suggest that when we consider the Muslim world, we must look first at Islam in this country. In this open society, they say, Islam has found a home like no other. American Islam is diverse, mirroring the vast ethnic and social range of this global religion that composes one-fifth of the world's population. In today's program, we'll sample this diversity. We'll speak with author and filmmaker Michael Wolfe, a convert to Islam. We'll hear from precious Rashida Muhammad and her unique perspective as an African-American Muslim. African-American Muslims represent more than a third of this country's Muslim population. And we'll speak with Omid Safi, an Iranian-American theologian and editor of the book Progressive Muslims. First, Amina Jandali. So much that is good in this culture is Islamic. What makes this country great? I mean, you could even look at the Constitution. Some of the basic rights laid out in the Constitution can be traced to some of the things that Islam lays out in the Quran. You know, the right to life, the right to property, the Sharia, the Islamic law is supposed to guarantee those basic rights. Amina Jandali is a Pakistani-American who became concerned about the public voice of Islam well before 9-11. Jandali was horrified by the violence which defined itself along religious lines in Bosnia in the early 1990s, and it was then that she founded the Islamic Networks Group. Most of her colleagues and co-activists are women, lay Muslims rather than scholars. I asked her where their conversations about Islam these days tend to start. Well, I think, I mean, obviously the main issue today is terrorism and I think in some ways it has to reach that level where the Muslim community is going to say, this is not an acceptable practice. It has never been acceptable. The rules of warfare in Islam are very specific. Uh, They do not allow the killing, the targeting of innocent civilians, women, children, old people. They do not even allow the taking down of infrastructure, fruit trees at that time, or poisoning of wells. And where and when this dramatic change was made, where people are now actually going out and doing these acts in the name of Islam and taking verses of the Quran, which traditionally have been in defense of human life, in defense against oppression. Um, When was that leap made? It was a modern, obviously a modern thing. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem in the Muslim world is you do not have, and we get this question all the time, we don't have someone like the Pope. You don't have have a Pope, right, right, right. Not that people don't ignore the Pope. I mean, people (laughs) ignore him right and left, but but still there is that voice. There is that one voice. How do you respond to the suggestion that what Islam needs is a reformation like Christianity had 400 years ago? I think what you're not going to have, and I've had people ask me that. I once had a little Jewish lady come up to me after I gave a speech at her uh, center. You know, aren't you guys going to reform Islam? (laughs) Right. The way that you have reformed Judaism or you have um, similar movements in Christianity where you kind of rewrite the Bible or rewrite the Quran, I don't think it's going to happen on that level. You know, the sense is that the Quran is the word of God and that God knows his creation better than any human can. Does that mean that everything is written in stone? Of course not, and it never has been. 
And that's the whole point. I think the, the kind of intolerant, rigid Islam that you see coming out of many parts of the Muslim world, or at least utterances coming, is not compatible with the history of Islam. I mean, Islam at its peak, Islamic history at its peak, was the crossroads of all civilizations, where mm -hmm. they brought the best from China, from India, from the Greeks and the Romans, who were pagans, you know. They translated these works into Arabic, and they passed them on to Europe. I mean, the Renaissance would not have been possible without this amazing just coalition or networking, if you want to use the word networking, of all the best civilizations. So I think it is a real fallacy to look at Islam as having at its basis an intolerance and a rigidity that we see today in the words of many of those who speak on behalf of Islam. I think this is, again, a postmodern uh, reaction. I think the way this trajectory that you just described of, of Islam at its peak, um, at the center of civilization, and now in many places characterized by intolerance and rigidity, it's possible for an outsider, and let's say a scholarly outsider, to look at that and say, well, this is the downward slide, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. How do you see that trajectory? Does that make you feel despairing? Does it make you feel hopeless? Well, it's certainly not, a, you know, it makes one very sad when you look at the, you know, you read the history and you read the amazing contributions and then you see where we are today. And and one could argue that it is actually when Muslims began to lose some of their Islamic values, the values for knowledge, the values for science, the values for, I mean, there are so many teachings in Islam, such as shura, which means mutual consultation, um, tolerance towards others, and then to see where we've come today, where we are now, I think, in our dark ages, and how do we get out of that? But also, in that picture that you just drew, I mean, the West is no longer in that dark age, right? That wasn't exactly. the end of history, was it? Yes, they came out and we went in. So, which is, I mean, I don't think that's unique. I think that's how civilizations function. But we need to now start climbing back up. But I think today, because there are so many forces, that there's not, again, the room for a natural evolution that maybe you had before. And so where is that going to take place? What's going to be the vehicle for that? Amina Jandali is a speaker and activist and co-founder of the Islamic Network Group in Berkeley, California. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith. Today, progressive Islam in America. Moderate Muslims describing how the conversation within Islam is evolving in this country. You still hear from a lot of people, uh, why aren't the moderate Muslims speaking out? And, and you know, at some level, you just uh, you feel like, you know, I've, I've lost my voice from speaking out. Omid Safi is a professor of religious studies and a student of Sufism. Although he traces his heritage to a long line of Persian poets and mystics, he was born in this country. And he is immersed with other American Muslims in an urgent dialogue to carve out what he calls a spiritual community of the middle. His book, Progressive Muslims, brings together an array of Islamic perspectives on such subjects as democracy and pluralism, women, and gender justice. They present a dramatic contrast to much recent investigative journalism about Islam in America, which tends to focus on the influence of al-Qaeda's extremist Wahhabi sect. There are rigid extremes at both ends of Muslim reality, Omid Safi concedes, the Wahhabis on one hand and secular Muslims on the other who would adopt Western values wholesale. Yet he writes, most of us find ourselves in the gloriously messy middle where real folks live and breathe. It's messy. It's messy in that middle. And, and it's also like a game of dodgeball. You know, you get hit from all sides. Um, <laughs> but I'm convinced that it's not just a middle ground. It's also in some ways a higher ground. I wonder what you have felt you needed to speak out about or critique within Islam, with other Muslims, about Islam in these last couple of years? Oh, well, <laughs> there are a number of different areas. One of them is, is sort of in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, you have seen kind of an ebb and flow of, of extremism in terms of al-Qaeda and things of that sort. Yeah. But you've also seen this opening where all of a sudden you don't find many Muslims who feel comfortable identifying themselves as Wahhabi. 
anymore. Okay. It's a kind of ultra-conservative movement that starts in Saudi Arabia in the 18th century. And while it is dogmatically uh, anti-Western, anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, actually more than anything, it's anti-other Muslims. <sighs> okay. Um, and, you know, throughout history... And well before 9-11, Wahhabi extremists have killed many, many times more Muslims than they have ever killed non-Muslims. They've killed Shi'i Muslims, Sufi Muslims, non-Saudi Muslims. Uh, so they have a long history of genocide. So, you know, on one hand, I think we're speaking out, you know, against those particular groups. And on the other hand, I think what we're doing, and this is not a comfortable thing to do, but the time for comfort has passed, <laughs> um, is to talk about all the uncomfortable issues. On all the ones that, and I'm, I'll use the pronoun we here, uh, we Muslims generally don't want to talk about publicly. We rather talk about them inside our own confined spaces. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're talking about issues of gender justice. We're talking about what does it mean to have communities in which women are not guaranteed the absolute full dignity that they are entitled to as human beings? What does it mean to have communities in which, in spite of all the Islamic ethical teachings of universal brotherhood and sisterhood, there are deep and abiding class divisions and racial divisions? And these are things that us Muslims don't like to talk about publicly or have not liked to talk about publicly, but I also sense a change. And I'm confident in that change. And part of it is a generational issue. And for those of us who happen to be both American and Muslim, part of it is a sense of, um, I mean, this is what us modern creatures do, is we are probing and prodding and critiquing and never too comfortable in any one place. <laughs> and, and so as Muslims, we're no exceptions. Uh, but those conversations being had out loud and out in the open, that's a new thing for the Muslim community. Give me some examples of where you're seeing that or what it looks like, where it's taking place. One of the most interesting places for it is the virtual realm, the Internet. Uh, this has completely, I think, changed the way that we are having difficult conversations about spiritual and communal and social issues. And there's a level of anonymity that the Internet affords us um, that, you know, we don't have to come face-to-face -face with someone who may be bigger than us or right. <laughs> richer than us. Or, or meaner. Or meaner. Yeah. Um, and uh, they can't shout us down quite as easily. And so one of the things that I've noticed is the incredible number of younger Muslims who, just as, you know, they are completely savvy in terms of technology and MP3s and that whole realm, that they're also carrying out their intellectual conversations on the Internet. Um, so there's a mushrooming of listservs and chat rooms where people are carrying out these kinds of debates and discussions. And this is new. Okay. This is new. And you're also seeing it being carried out in the quote-unquote real world as well. And people are also trying to figure out how do we build inclusive communities communities that are inclusive, racial-wise, sexual-wise, gender-wise, class-wise, in all those kinds of senses. Um, and, and the fact that they're being done deliberately and explicitly, I think, makes it an exciting time. Well, and there is this spate of books, and I keep becoming aware of more of them. I mean, there's your volume, Progressive Muslims, and there's uh, Michael Wolf's Taking Back Islam, and, and Khaled Abuel Fadl's Tolerant Islam. I mean, and, and these are all collections of many, many Muslim voices. That's right. That is uh, one exciting aspect of it. And, and the folks who are participating in conversations, I think, come from a good range of the spectrum yes. of Muslim voices. What's interesting, though, and this is one reason that I think there's both listening and not listening going on, is that parallel to these set of books, you have the whole other set of Islamophobic kind of voices out there, people like Bernard Lewis and Samuel Huntington and Daniel Pipes and uh, a lot of the neoconservative types who it's almost as if the books that you just mentioned, um, the Progressive Muslim book and Michael Wolf's work and Khaled Abu Fadl's and 
uh, Asmagul Hassans and so many other people as if we don't exist. It's kind of this chorus of there is a deafening silence of moderate Muslims. Talk about things that anger one. Uh, because I think that to refuse to acknowledge the voice and the conscience of other human beings is an incredible act of barbarism. Muslim theologian Omid Safi. In recent months, he has been a key voice in a growing movement that sometimes calls itself progressive Islam. For him, this entails critical thinking both about Islam and about American culture. For example, he says, sweeping portrayals of the Muslim world, such as naming entire countries as evil, undermine the constructive influence American Muslims are seeking to exercise in other parts of the world. One thing that as Muslims we're having to do is to stand up to those extremists who would characterize all Americans as yeah. being evil. Right. And we're saying that, no, you can't go around uh, demonizing a whole civilization and a whole group of humanity. And using that logic, we have to also stand up to people who would characterize an entire nation as belonging somehow to this axis of evil, as if everyone there is evil or even every act of their government is evil. So I think one has to be consistent uh, about it. And I don't, I don't find that kind of uh, totalizing and generalizing uh, to, to be a compassionate act and to be a helpful act in bringing humanity together. You've also spoken about something you call pamphlet Islam <laughs> and web Islam as problematic. And, you know, you just talked about things happening on the web that feel good to you and exciting. But what are these things you're concerned about? What's pamphlet Islam and web Islam? You know, there's something very appealing about the process of offering short and quick answers to very complicated problems. In the case of Islam, you know, when you walk into many Islamic centers, you see at the front desk or on the wall somewhere these ludicrous kinds of pamphlets, the position of women in Islam, the role of Jesus in Islam, the concept of God in Islam. And what it does is it takes 1,400 years of history and an incredibly rich and diverse spectrum of interpretation and practice and picks one of them and represents it as the Islamic take on things. It never tells you where in the spectrum it comes from. It just becomes the Islamic take on something. And collapsing that rich spectrum is a crime <laughs> because it's precisely that fluidity of Islamic interpretation and practice that people find so useful. Um, it's been one of the great hallmarks of the Islamic tradition that you've always have had a, a plurality of voices and interpretations and practice more or less side by side. And however uh, grudgingly uh, acknowledging the validity of other interpretations, even if one disagrees with them. You talk about this virtue of adab, yeah. is that right? Tell me what that is and, and what role that might have to play in what you see as a constructive way forward. It's the key. It is the key. It just represents the core, humane, compassionate, selfless quality. It, it's unspoken most of the times. It's just something that you And what do. is it? I mean, what's your definition of adab? It's rooted in love, but it's when you act on love in a way that puts someone else before you. And so, you know, you just have to give examples. When you travel in the Muslim world and you go to the tea houses and you're sitting down and someone brings out a tray of little cups, someone, the host generally, will take the cup of tea and they'll put sugar in your cup before they put it in their own. And the reason they do this is that should somehow, heaven forbid, the sugar run out, they rather you have a sweet cup of tea than themselves. They put you before them. You know, something that I that is important in the, what you've been saying and writing recently is that you're not only being critical of, let's say, injustice that has come to be part of some Islamic thought and action, but 
that you think it's important for Muslims to be mindful and critical of, uh, you've used this phrase, the arrogance of modernity. Hmm. Now talk to me about that. It's one of the um, paradigm shifts, I think, that is taking place in the ongoing interpretation of Islam. If you go back um, 50 years and you listen to what the liberal Muslims were saying, essentially it was idolizing modernity and saying that, you know, we want to be as Western as possible, as modernized as possible, as scientific, rational, technological as possible, because that's what the Europeans are like. Yeah, and that's what a lot of Americans are wanting Muslims to be desiring now, too. Uh That's correct. And I think what has happened with this emergence of the group that we're calling progressive Muslims is that we are exposing modernity to the same kind of critique that we are doing to our own tradition. So the idol of modernity has to be smashed. And in that sense, what we are saying is not fundamentally different from what post-colonials and post-moderns, if you would, in, in, in other conversations are saying. It's to say that there are incredibly powerful and profound things that take place in modernity, such as, you know, the rise of scientific development and uh, notions of democracy and human rights, but that these same developments also have a very dark and nasty underbelly. Well, give me some examples of that. Racism. You know, just uh, the development of, of so much contemporary philosophy, going back to Kant and Hegel, is built on I think, uh, a profound sense of racism, of privileging sort of the white European as the embodiment of the rational self. I want to note that you, again, have your broad, your large historical view, because you're talking about modernity as the last couple hundred years, right? And and maybe even more than that. Okay. Maybe even more than that. I would say maybe last 400 years. All right. Okay. Just to, to clarify that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that kind of racism, the absolute environmental destruction that we have inflicted upon the world in a way that has never existed before, the legacy of colonialism. I mean, what is, after all, uh, 19th century and, you know, much of 20th century about other than colonizing 85% of the world? So modernity cannot, for us, be this entirely uh, wholesome package that we must somehow download It has to be critiqued. It has to be taken apart. That which is good and that which affirms the dignity of all humanity, not just some portions of humanity, is something that we will gladly tap into. But that which is racist and sexist and environmentally destructive, we will expose and we will not use and we will resist and we will work to undermine it and to replace it by something that's better. And it's that sense of uh, grudgingly engaging both our own tradition and modernity to find the best elements of both that I think is new. Well, I would say that your musical taste is is decidedly pluralist (laughs) (laughs) because you start your book, Progressive Muslims, your introduction to that with some lyrics from Bob Dylan. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing Tell me why why you invoke Bob Dylan for Muslims at this moment in time. You know, it it comes from a very personal experience. It has to do with... um, after 9-11, driving in my car one day and with this song coming on the CD that I had put in and just tears rolling down my face and just this absolute recognition that, you know, when he talks about the waters rising all around him. Says, Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown. Have, right. yeah, And accept yeah. that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. The times there are changing. 
and and this you know this is exactly what I felt that as as the Muslim community we were going through. And you know when he talks about uh, how parents cannot stop the young ones from moving in his directions, and he calls on the senators not to block this wind of change. Uh, there, there are so many levels at which this resonates, and uh, it's that sense that he's got some very dark songs in there, and then comes this absolutely uh, life-affirming, humanistic, the winds of change are blowing, the times they're changing, and that's, I guess, where I find us. As the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading. And the first one now will later be last for the time. Omid Safi is a professor of Islamic studies at Colgate University. His book is Progressive Muslims on Justice, Gender, and Pluralism. After a short break, we'll return with precious Rashida Muhammad, a third-generation African-American Muslim, and Michael Wolff, who grew up in a mixed Jewish and Christian household and converted to Islam in the 1980s. He's the author of a book of essays entitled Taking Back Islam. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith is produced by Minnesota Public Radio and distributed by PRI. Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling 1-800-777-TEXT or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith. Today, Progressive Islam in America. Over a third of America's six million Muslims are African American. There are a few black Muslim icons in American culture, Muhammad Ali, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, and more notoriously in recent years, Louis Farrakhan. His famous militant Nation of Islam is in fact a splinter group of the original Nation of Islam, which underwent a thorough reform after the 1970s. Farrakhan's movement today has tens of thousands of members in comparison to 2.5 million members of the mainstream African-American coalition, the Muslim Society of America. Many Americans' knowledge of African-American Islam may end where the popular movie about Malcolm X ended, with his assassination at the hands of Nation of Islam members. Yet by the time he died, his understanding of the nature of Islam had undergone a radical transformation, a transformation that would echo beyond his death. Here is the voice of actor Denzel Washington in that movie. Now you may be shocked by these words. But I have eaten from the same plate, drunk from the same glass, and prayed to the same God with fellow Muslims whose eyes were blue, whose hair was blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white. And we were all brothers, true, people of all colors and races believing in one God and one humanity. Now my first concern, of course, is with the group to which I belong. For we, more than any others, are deprived of our inalienable rights. But I believe the true practice of Islam can remove the cancer of racism from the hearts and the souls of all Americans. A decade after Malcolm X's death, Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad was succeeded by his son, Warith Dean Muhammad. And he essentially reformed mainstream African-American Islam along the lines of Malcolm X's personal transformation. 
His Muslim Society of America rejected racially separatist beliefs and allowed a greater role for women. For my next guest, Precious Rashida Muhammad, this is personal history. Her father was part of the paramilitary group associated with the original Nation of Islam and was one of the men who lowered Elijah Muhammad's body into the grave. But he raised his daughter in an American world of Muslim reformation. I was born in 1975, and 1975 is actually a very historical year in the history of a good you know, number of African-American Muslims in that it was the year that Elijah Muhammad died and his son, Warif Dean Muhammad, took over and transitioned the community to Islam proper, orthodox or mainstream, depending on <laughs> who's describing it. And so I was always raised as just Muslim sort of in the direct way that Muslims are all over the world that are mainstream traditional. Precious Rashida Muhammad insists that there is a special affinity between the spirit of Islam and the experience of African Americans, and that this has grown more relevant. She writes that, as a result of September 11th, immigrant Muslims are seeking wisdom from the struggle of African American Muslims. For these are a people who have taken Islam and used it as an antidote rather than a poison. While studying at Harvard Divinity School, Precious Muhammad unearthed surprising chapters in the long, little-known history of black Islam in America. Right. I mean, it's understood that Muslims came early to the New World and some even fought in the Civil War. But it's also believed that 20 percent of the slaves who were mutinied aboard the Amistad were Muslim. Right. And then you have Sylvian Duf's award-winning book, African Muslims Enslaved in the Americas. And in that book, she points out that a significant percentage of the slaves were Muslim. And she makes the argument that Islam was the first religion freely chosen as a system of belief by African-Americans and the slaves. And she says that one slave master even provided an Arabic Bible and a Quran for his Muslim servant. And she writes that African Muslims may have been in the Americas, the slaves of Christian masters, but their minds were free. They were servants of Allah. Islam didn't come and abolish slavery. What it did was it elevated the minds of the people who were oppressed into an understanding that they were servants of God alone. And I think that is much greater than necessarily liberating people from physical servitude (laughs) without any concept of their greater freedom that they have as human beings and, and members of society. Yeah, and you know, and then you're making a theological statement, too, about the nature of Islam as you understand and experience it. In a way, as you're saying, didn't abolish slavery, but turns the whole notion of slavery on its head. Islam makes a great argument for freeing slaves, the benefits of freeing slaves. It makes the argument that there's more lenience put on them and their religious obligations because it's aware that they oppress people. In addition to that, again, there's this kind of understanding of being an Abdullah, a servant of God, and that's the greatest concept. And so everybody in that sense is a slave of God alone, and your only true master is God. I think that is really something that appeals to African-Americans. You know, what you're describing, I think, is a deep affinity between African-American experience and the theology of Islam and the and the history of Islam. And a large percentage of American Muslims are African-American. They definitely make up the largest block of Muslims. And the largest organized community of Muslims in the United States, as far as having a vision and a mission statement and actually having sort of educational thrusts and different economic development programs and things like that, is the American Society of Muslims, which is predominantly African-American community led by Imam Warasadi Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad. And that's the community that I grew up in. And that community has always stressed the importance of establishing a model community in the broadest sense, a community which is balanced, witnessing to all people, a community that God establishes, approves of, and supports. So that's the mission and vision statement of the American Society of Muslims, which, again, the case has been made that that community alone has about two million Muslims in it. And and yet, with this this vital history, it seems that it's only recently that other Muslims have really turned to African-American Muslims to understand that experience and maybe even learn from it. I think that, I mean, there has been some tension with collaboration and understanding and and reaching out. And I think that has a lot to do with just understanding the background of African-American Muslims. I think there was a lot of suspicion there and concern about 
where they were coming from, especially those who were in the Nation of Islam. But at the same time, you have the African-American Muslims being the first ones to openly proclaim themselves as Muslims, the first ones to openly use the Arabic names like Muhammad. And now in the African-American community, even if you're not Muslim, you're going to find Rashidas and Fatimas and especially Aishas. And, and so you have sort of these people who were treated as second-class Muslims to a certain degree being the leaders of Islam in America as far as exposing it and promoting social justice in Islam. And I think after 9-11, that became clearer to the Muslim community as a whole in the United States that they needed to collaborate more with the African-American community because they had more of an understanding of a history of oppression in, in the United States. Say something about what 9-11 did, how it changed that. One example is when Jesse Jackson came to Harvard, I think it was shortly after 9-11, he came in October, and a Muslim student, South Asian American Muslim student, uh, stood up and asked Jesse Jackson, you know, you have an understanding, your people as an African Americans have an understanding of oppression in the United States and what the Arabs and Muslims are facing today. And, you know, he asked Reverend Jackson, well, what can you tell us as Muslims to deal with some of the oppression that we're facing now, you know, cause, because you have the experience and Jesse Jackson responded, there's no safety in the margins. He said that you have to coalition build, you have to collaborate with the community, you have to get out there. There's no safety in the margins. And, and that's something that African-American Muslims in the United States have been saying forever and have been doing. And so you have African-American community sort of well integrated into American society, whereas in some cases the immigrant community sort of stayed to itself. Mm-hmm. It was very active within its own community and for the benefit of the Muslim community, but to a certain degree didn't understand the importance of reaching out and doing a lot of the interfaith and a lot of the collaboration that goes on. The thing is with African Americans, you really didn't have the luxury of staying to yourself. Um, you had to participate because it made the difference between you know human rights, civil rights, police brutality, all these different things that you're facing. So you have people who vote more, who become more a part of city council and all these different things out of sort of experience, again, of oppression and knowing that it's actually indispensable to their well-being. Precious Rashida Muhammad, a third-generation African-American Muslim. She's talking about the role of African-American Muslims in new dialogue within Islam in this country. African-American Muslims are sometimes referred to as Bilalians, a reference to the black Abyssinian slave who was freed by one of the Prophet Muhammad's earliest companions and who became the first Muslim to issue the call to prayer. I asked her to tell me about the source of her greatest fear as an American Muslim at this time and the source of her greatest hope. My greatest fear is the misrepresentation. I think that's my greatest fear. And right now, not necessarily the misrepresentation from non-Muslims, but misrepresentation from Muslims. And I can only speak from my experience on that and, and say what Islam means to me and my understanding of it and its message of universal human excellence, that it has something that can appeal to everyone, not necessarily that they have to be Muslim, but that there's a message in it that can allow me to sit down with anyone in a civilized manner and be a part of that human family. So my greatest fear is when Muslims misrepresent that. Mm -hmm. It's it's very problematic for me because I always say, well, that's not the Islam that I know. And so I think in that, my greatest hope is that people can see that beautiful message of Islam that I grew up with as a child and such an innocent understanding of it. You know, going out at age five and cleaning up the parks when I wanted to watch cartoons with my father having me (laughs) as a young Muslim child going to clean up dirty parks with, you know, hoes and rakes and all these (laughs) shovels and not understanding that. Like, all of these things were a part of you know, what he believed to be an obligation as a Muslim to do. And I think he'll look at a park today and still we should go and clean that <laughs> clean that up. You know, I want people, I think the greatest fear is the misrepresentation of that and not to be able to see the beauty of that. And the greatest hope is for people to see that. And also for Muslims to see the value in general that African-American Muslims have had to spreading the message of Islam. Precious Rashida Muhammad is founder and president of the Journal of Islam in America Press and founder of the Islam in America conferences at Harvard Divinity School. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith. Today, we're exploring the perspectives of progressive Muslims in America. These are people who have a better opportunity than Muslims perhaps anywhere in the world to reclaim the core values of this faith. 
Michael Wolf grew up in a mixed Jewish and Christian home and converted to Islam 20 years ago. He published The Hajj, an American's pilgrimage to Mecca, in 1993. He created the recent PBS documentary, Muhammad, the Legacy of a Prophet, to explore the depths of Islamic faith that he found lacking in other media coverage. And he is the editor of a volume of essays by American Muslims entitled Taking Back Islam. In that volume, a number of authors draw parallels between the early history of Islam and Islam in America today. The Prophet Muhammad himself and his original followers left Mecca for freer lands like Medina and Abyssinia and flourished in other cultures. I asked Michael Wolf what he means when he writes that 10 years from now, the early 21st century may mark the time when American Muslims found their real voice. The core values of Islam are very in very good um, alliance, very close alliance with many of the core values of this country, um, including racial and religious pluralism, a sense of justice, a sense of equity. And to look back and see what's happened to people's lives all over the world since uh, 9-11 has been a real impetus, I think, that pressure to distinguish a religious practice from the political rhetoric of uh, a small group of disenchanted upper-middle-class anarchists. And, you know, it's the energy, I think, that jumps out of these pages of the book, which you have edited, but which is, in fact, a collection of chapters written by many different kinds of Muslims from different countries, different cultures, different gender, and different perspectives— but it's, a, it's an incredibly energetic group of essays. Well, yes. And I think it's, uh, it's an urgency that's born of a deep concern. It's a kind of push. Uh, you know, it's a common statement that the power of God is to pull good out of evil. The power of religious faith is to pull good out of evil. To reach into the center of something that is uh, horrible and destructive and to draw out of it by human effort and heart something that's positive. If you could take me inside how Muslims, after that initial shock, began to speak among yourselves. You quote something, this wonderful phrase that I hadn't heard, that the Prophet Muhammad said, speak the truth even if it hurts you. Yeah, and I always think the emphasis on that is even if it hurts you yourself. Uh, in other words, uh, mm-hmm. be honest enough to recognize that in a group, even a small group, there will be variations of good and bad and uh, capable and, uh, and harebrained and so on. And that in a group as large as one-fifth of the planet's population, for God's sake, at least have the humility to accept the fact that some in your group can go haywire and then have the um, uh, energy to define how that's happened and how you're different from them. I think that was a big hurdle for many Muslims uh, here and abroad to get over, and many people are not over it yet. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy thing when you belong to a group that is traditionally victimized anyhow. I became a Muslim in the 80s. It was no cakewalk then, let me tell you. So after about a month or so, or six weeks of that, I began to hear people in mosques and on the telephone and writing emails and so on saying, well, you know, we got more of a problem here than we think um, or than we're saying. And really we need to look in, as Shakespeare says, you know, look into your own foul heart. You want to straighten things out. And I believe that uh, Muslims have been doing that. This is, after all, a religion of great candor, you know. It's not a religion even in its own foundational story that goes in for a lot of mystery. And there's pretty good scholarship and a pretty good academic tradition in the Muslim world, always has been. Um, And it's a very literate culture. And one of the most quoted phrases in the Quran is, for people who think, for thinking people. This book is for thinking people. So, lo and behold, many people began to think and give some consideration to the various stripes and colors of Islam and to some of the defunct institutional aspects uh, of the religion in various countries. Here in the States, um, we have really, by comparison, a nascent community. So it isn't surprising that a lot of this introspection and a lot of this public reconsideration would take place here. Does that mean that also some of the 
baggage, some of the, the institutions which people want now to critique aren't so, so overwhelming in this country for Muslims in this country? Uh, yeah, that's probably true, too. I, I think, though, largely it's just a matter of uh, free speech. Honestly, I mean, there, there are a number of uh, dictatorships in the Middle East and elsewhere where you're not free to speak and where the religion is, be it whatever that religion is, and in, in these cases I'm talking about Islam, mm-hmm. is essentially a state-run affair. All right, so here the conversation is possible and the critical discussion can be out in the open. Correct. And it can be developed. You know, I mean, you don't do this sub rosa, uh, you know, in whispers. You have to develop a kind of conversation that has a chance to surface, spread, create courage in others to speak out as well. Yeah. You know, this is not something that can take place in a day or a week. It has to, there has to be sufficient ground for the seeds to grow. And I think here you have a better possibility of that than, say, in, I don't know what, Egypt. You know, there's a, a very interesting proposition that someone makes in the book Taking Back Islam, Yahya Emmerich, is that how he yes, say it? Yes, yes. Who uh-huh. is an educator and a publisher. And I found this thought also, this was the theme that I felt was sort of under the surface in many of the of the writings in that book, that this notion that Islam in America is probably closer to the true teachings of the Prophet Muhammad than anywhere else at any other time in the last 500 years, or at least that it has the potential uh, of being closer to those true teachings. And there's there are these interesting analogies being made between the original Muslims and Mecca and Medina, and it says we are in Meccan times today in the Muslim world. Islam has emigrated to safer lands. <laughs> Well, yes, it is true. And the spirit of the teachings of Muhammad are very um, egalitarian, mm-hmm. more egalitarian in many cases than the court expressions of Islamic law, which are also egalitarian, but there's a gentleness. Michael Wolf. He is a BeliefNet columnist and the author of several books on his midlife conversion to Islam two decades ago. He's also the editor of a collection of essays entitled Taking Back Islam. That book, Wolf writes, is written by progressive, mostly American Muslims, people who are in love with Islam, who are proud of Islam, and who are confident enough in its strength to believe that it can stand up to honest introspection. Michael Wolff and the other Muslims in his book suggest that Islam in America may come closest to the Islamic values of the Prophet himself. This is a very powerful experience Muslims have undertaken to come to the United States. You know, when the Jewish reform movement began, it began in Cincinnati, Ohio. It didn't begin in Germany. And the conservative movement began in somewhat of a reaction to the reform movement 30 or 40 years later. So this country does powerful things to people uh, who arrive here and to the generations that follow. And no one knows what the effects of being in a free society, a relatively free society, will have on what you might call postmodern Islam or whatever you want to call it, you know, 21st century Islam. Your final chapter is called Havgaran Will Travel, and you describe a dinner party. And I also find just a little a look inside this kind of more personal moment in the life of a Muslim with professional people and good conversation, and I'm assuming good food around a long table and children running around, and and the evening ends with prayer and a recitation of the Quran. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite common uh, in just going to dinner to anybody's house. The short Quranic recitation is always incorporated in the prayer, So if you arrive between 5 and 7, you're probably going to be involved in that anyway. But then oftentimes, and particularly at high moments during the year like Ramadan, there'll be a recitation of a larger section of the Quran. It's it's very beautiful to listen to. I virtually have no Arabic, but I find it mesmerizing. Yes, I mean, it's interesting to me to think of it being, I I can imagine it as a traditional kind of entertainment, but but to imagine it happening at a at an American dinner party yes, no, is a new uh, thought. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Well, this is why I would like to see in the next five years or so some books coming out by individual Muslims talking about their lives here because there is the most fascinating mixture of traditional and contemporary living going on in the Muslim community right now. 
there are computer programs that will set your clock for you so that you know when it's the time to pray. You can go online now and hear the uh, call to prayer from the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the kind of heartland of Islam. There are all kinds of interesting combinations of the traditional and the very modern um, that are taking place. And it's an interesting moment right now in our society. And I, I hope that in addition to essays by apologists, by reformists, by progressive Muslims and everything else, I hope also that people will begin to register their actual lives in print because it's a very interesting time right now. I don't know what Islam will look like in this country in a hundred years. No one does. Michael Wolff is a filmmaker and the author of several books, including Taking Back Islam and The Hajj, An American's Pilgrimage to Mecca. Earlier in this hour, you heard Precious Rashida Muhammad, Omid Safi, and Amina Jandali, Muslims creating a vital spiritual home in America. We'd love to hear your comments on this program and your reflections. Please write to us at mail at speakingoffaith.org. You can also write to us through our website at speakingoffaith.org. While you're there, you'll find book and music lists, suggestions on further resources, and relevant links. You can also call Minnesota Public Radio at 1-800-228-7123. This program was produced by Brian Newhouse and Kate Moose. Our technical director is Mitch Hanley. Judy Stone Nunnally is associate producer. Our managing producer is Marge Ostrushko. Bill Buesenberg is the executive producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Pew Charitable Trusts, investing in ideas, returning results, pewtrusts.com. Additional support is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, committed to serving their congregations, families, and communities through customer-focused financial strategies, online at thrivent.com. Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling 1-800-777-TEXT or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. This program is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and distributed by Public Radio International. PRI Public Radio International.